This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's pick for a running mate. Now, for some time, she's been the leading candidate for that job. But for people outside of California, and even for many people in her home state, this has been something of a whirlwind. A San Francisco City DA, the state attorney general, and then a U.S. senator, all seemingly in a short time, with national voters only noticing her when her sharp questioning of Attorney General Barr and now Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh made most newscasts. But this is somebody who will be 56 by election day, so she did not come out of nowhere. So let's talk to somebody who has followed her political career since the beginning. Joe Garofoli is senior political writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Joe, good to have you. How are you doing? Gil, good to talk to you. All right. From the moment I first met her, and I'll always remember this because I was at lunch, she saw me with San Francisco broadcaster Ron Owens, came over to the table when she was still city attorney. And and really kind of talked us up, followed her ever since, but always was asking the question, what does she stand for? And and I got to tell you, from my covering of her, I never really knew. Well, I think that's that was one of the uh, the challenges of her presidential campaign. Uh, you, she really never quite picked a lane. Look at look at where she was on Medicare for all. First, she's like, uh, I'm I'm all in uh, Medicare for all. Get rid of the insurance companies. The next day, I was like, Well, I'm not. No, that's not exactly what I meant. Then she then she walked it back to to the point where uh, ultimately she settled on something that was sort of uh, closer to what Joe Biden's plan is. Uh, but by that point, there there was never that's that was the challenge. Voters never got kind of figured out what she was all about. The upside for that, as, as we wrote in the Chronicle uh, uh, this week, was that uh, is that. Um, you know, it's harder for <laughs> for Republicans to to pin her on something. They say, "Well, she's she's a, she was a prosecutor. She put a lot of people in jail. She's against everything Black Americans are for." And then the the, the other side of the mouth, they're saying, "Well, no, she's a, she's all about BLM. She's a radical from San Francisco." It's like, so which which is she? And that that's Kamala. Uh, part of it was, you know, she she would always say, "Well, I can't take a stand on that because I'm." You know, I'm doing this when she was a state attorney general. I'm representing the state. But, you know, she did choose not to defend same-sex marriage uh, when it was being challenged at the at the ballot or challenging court. And then she at the same time, she would defend 
the death penalty. Well, in fact, I've actually seen statements within the same paragraph attacking her for being progressive and then attacking her for not being progressive. Right, right. And the, and the progressives in, in California in particular, she was uh, certainly not their first pick uh, to be Joe Biden's running mate. And I mean, Joe Biden wasn't their first pick either. But uh, I think there's a lot of gritting their teeth and, and, and saying the, the ultimate goal for us is getting rid of Trump. We're going to we're going to shut up and, and be good soldiers uh, for the most part uh, until Election Day. And if Biden wins, uh, you can you can count to 10 and they're going to be on Biden's front door saying, hey, um, where's Medicare for all? Where's the Green New Deal? Where we're going to try and push him uh, to the left as far as possible. Um, but, you know, I think it will be muted, uh, a muted reaction right now that that unity commission between Bernie supporters and Biden supporters that that uh, gave their uh, this kind of came together a few weeks ago to, to settle up on some policy goals or some policy commonalities. I think that's going to mute a lot of that uh, rebellion for the most part. A California case that most people nationally haven't heard about, but more than likely will in Republican commercials in the weeks and months to come, will be a decision that she made as district attorney not to seek the death penalty for the killer of San Francisco police officer Isaac Espinoza. This is, again, not a case that most people have heard about nationally, but I am sure they will. Tell us about what that case was. This is, this is a seminal case uh, that kind of shaped Kamala Harris in, in many ways. And, and, was a, and it, was a, it was a very, very key case. This happened just a couple of weeks after, um, after she became district attorney. There was a uh, popular, very popular police officer named Isaac Espinoza who was shot in the line of duty by a gang member. She decided not to seek the death penalty for that person. Um, that there was an uproar about that. Really, there shouldn't have been. She campaigned very openly about opposing the death penalty. But nonetheless, she got a lot of blowback from the police union. And then at the officer's funeral, she's sitting in the front row, Diane Feinstein, who at that point, this is in 2004, 2000, uh, and was a very, uh, was the most popular and, and powerful politician in, in California at that point, uh, gets up and says, uh, you know, she should have. Uh, sought the death penalty in so many words. Uh, she said, this is not only the definition of tragedy, it is the special circumstance called for by the death penalty law. The congregation, this is filled with, with cops in uniform, stood up and roared as Kamala Harris is sitting in the, in the front row. Uh, she held her ground. Uh, the uh, person who shot the officer got the life without parole. And but at the same time, this you know she had a, a very rocky relationship with the police unions. They supported her opponent when she ran for state attorney general in 2010. But one thing that you have to give Harris credit for, she went out and tried to mend the fences with the, the police. She traveled the state, and when she ran for re-election for state attorney general in 2014, she got many of their endorsements. There's been a lot of talk about what's called her ambition. Uh, there's been stories that Senator Chris Dodd and other people told Biden, look, if she's vice president, she's going to start planning her presidential campaign almost immediately. Watch your back, that kind of thing. I've never known anybody, though, who ran for president who wasn't ambitious. I mean, you don't campaign 19 hours a day for a president unless you're an ambitious person. Why is this something that seems to stick to Kamala Harris with some people? Every, as you said, every other politician is, is ambitious at some, at some level, even if you're running for city council. Uh, so I, I just think those are people who are looking for a way to, to not 
like her in some way. There's a lot of other things you can pick on her about, but uh, being ambitious, come on. Did anybody say that about Al Gore? You know, he, he ran for president eight years later. I don't know. Did anyone say that about George H.W. Uh, Bush? You know, he, he ran for president. Was he, was he ambitious? Let's come back to the health care issue because that's an interesting one because that is something that's going to absolutely come up. So many people have lost their employment. So many people have gone into gig economy jobs, which have, you know, bring no health care with it. I mean, this has become a more pressing issue suddenly than it might have been even before the virus. And even before the virus, it was a big issue in the Democratic Party. On health care, her waffling on Medicare for all during the presidential primary showed somebody who couldn't really make up her mind both about the issue and what was best as a political stance. Now, of course, Biden as president is going to take the lead on this. But still, are we expecting her to settle on something pretty quickly here? Because somebody, whoever is going to win this election, is going to have to lead on this issue. So many people have lost coverage. Yes, I think the, the moment, uh, if, if Biden were to win, the moment they have their hands on the Bible, no, nobody, everybody will forget what her position was on it. I think most people have already since she had about three or four of them. If she and Biden win... President Obama was fond of giving Biden certain portfolios. This is your baby. Is there any area of expertise or special interest that Biden might turn to Kamala Harris and say, this is your baby? I think she's going to um, uh, probably take the lead on the, the racial justice um, uh, package that's been sort of languishing in Congress right now. It's uh, it's through the House, but Mitch McConnell hasn't, uh, there's been no vote on it in the Senate. And uh, so I think that's what, that's maybe definitely one of her things. I wouldn't look for her to be on, uh, you know, doing any sort of foreign policy. She really, I mean, let's, Remember, she's only been in the Senate a couple of years, and, and most of that time was spent running for president. So she really doesn't have the uh, the, the foreign policy chops. But Biden, given the, his expertise in foreign policy, uh, will, will lean heavily on his uh, own Secretary of State and uh, National Security Advisor on that. Yeah. And I've often said that even though it's always fun for us to look at who the vice presidential pick is, it, it always seems to be the thing that people concentrate on. The pick for secretary of state in the end always ends up meaning more. But there has been a history, recent history of vice presidents who did have a large portfolio, Biden being one of them. Dick Cheney certainly had at least one hand on the wheel. And, uh, and Al Gore you know, also did, uh, did a lot of stuff for the environment and reinventing government and such. So there is a, a more recent history of that. Joe Garofoli is senior political writer for the San Francisco Chronicle and host for the It's All Political podcast, which is going to be very important, of course, for these next several months, especially. Joe, it's always a pleasure, man. Thanks for being with us. Great to talk to you again, Gil. Take care. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We have an entirely unexpected and very strange housing market in this time of virus when everything seems to be strange. At a time of lost jobs, houses, which were barely selling at all at the start of the year because of COVID, are flying off, well, not the shelves, of course, but certainly off the market. Prices are jumping in many areas, and yet other people, of course, are facing eviction and ruin. So how can both of these things be happening in the housing market at the same time? Elise Glink is CEO of Best Money Moves, an award-winning financial wellness platform at bestmoneymoves.com, and a longtime watcher and reporter on the real estate scene. Elise, good talking to you again. How are you? 
I'm good, thanks, Gil. Nice to be here. We seem to have two housing markets. So let's start with home sales. They seem to be jumping now nationwide. Existing home sales now expected to be down by the year no more than 3%, which is amazing because it had a terrible start. What's going on? Well, pending sales are now up 6% over a year ago, June, well, it's a little bit uh, more than a year ago, June of 2019, which are the latest numbers. But we've seen 10 weeks of sales increases, which is really remarkable, as you point out. The downside was at the end of March, all of April, beginning of May, when real estate agents across the country said, are we ever going to sell anything ever again? And then suddenly the world exploded. And I think the easiest way to think about this is August is the new April. or Yeah, that's right. August is the new April, where April would be the heart of the home buying season. It's now August, uh, September, and October. Yeah, I remember just three months ago talking to a realtor. I asked how she was doing. She said, you know what? It's because of all the realtors looking at the handful of things that were for sale. She said, it's basically like being one of 500 waiters at a restaurant with one customer. (laughs) I I think that's sort of interesting. Everybody was waiting to pounce. What I think has surprised everybody, including housing economists and the people who run big, huge websites like Realtor.com and Zillow.com, has been the ferociousness of interest from home buyers across the spectrum. And I think that has to do with the idea that we are now seeing for the eighth time this year, historically low interest rates. Yeah. And let's talk about that mortgage thing, which has surprised everybody for, well, more than a decade. I mean, I remember monthly talking to Lawrence Yoon, the chief economist of the National Association of Realtors, saying, you got to buy now, you got to buy now. You know, the average mortgage over the years has been about 6%. It's going to go up, probably going to go up in six months. We'll probably be at 8 9 10% in a couple of years. And of course, it's only gotten lower. Now, there's there's a weird situation here. The mortgage rates are incredibly low, which is one reason, I guess, for the surge in buying. But with so many jobs seemingly in trouble, I'm wondering how easy it is to get a mortgage. Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, and it's a lot harder than it used to be. Uh, like you, I've interviewed so many different housing economists, and they all were sure that we were going to be at 10% interest by now and that we were just going to see this incredible rise in, in inflation, which, of course, ha- has completely disappeared. So getting a mortgage, though, is a lot tougher, particularly if you're one of the billions of Americans who is a contract employer uh, employee or you're self-employed. That's gotten insanely tough. You just have to prove so much in the way of revenue uh, and, and longstanding contracts and what have you. But if you're a W-2, meaning you're a full-time employee, you've been a full-time employee for a while, and you don't have anything other outside, you know, another income or maybe a a little side business that they have to prove you really aren't just using for the losses, it should be relatively straightforward to get a mortgage. And there are a lot of products out there right now that are offering mortgages in record time where you can close in four and six weeks, which is really kind of remarkable. It's very remarkable. Now, looking at the housing market, what role does the lack of inventory play for now and the future? So housing inventory, the number of homes that are available for sale, is literally at a record low. It's like at a 100-year low. People are truly having trouble finding homes to buy. And this has been a problem for probably about five years. Uh, Since the Great Recession 10 years ago, we had a huge number of homes that came on the market. People went into foreclosure Sometimes they started renting them back from the hedge funds that picked them up, and then they decided to stop and stay. And they have interest rates that are 25 or 3%. They're nearly done paying off those mortgages if, if they bought new homes then, and they have no interest in moving. Why? Because as you point out, home prices have risen, and it's a lot more expensive to live somewhere else. So they'd be paying more, getting less, 
And now those people who stayed in their large homes, they're happy because all their kids have come home to live with them. So it's um, really interesting that people just are not selling. They are happy in their homes and they're staying put. The other thing that's starting to contribute to this, and this is brand new just since March, we have seen a, a definite change in how people think about buying and where they want to live. And to a great extent, now everybody doesn't want to live in the city and they all want to live in the suburbs. They want their own houses. They want yards and space. They want to be able to walk on the street. And I think there's a real shift that's gone on, particularly for millennials who were in the process of redefining how everybody was going to move to the city and live in multicultural unity. Suddenly, everybody wants to rush to the suburbs and get as much space between them and everybody else as they can afford. Now, this brings an interesting social situation. So what has happened is a big shift in population. More African-Americans, for instance, now live in the suburbs, not the city, because of the gentrification that happened in the city. So now, if the people from the city are moving back to the suburbs, you wonder what more kind of shift in population we're going to have out of this. I think that it's really useful to look at what everybody said they wanted when they lived in the city, right? They wanted an urban experience where they could walk to work, walk to their favorite restaurants, walk to their coffee shop, walk to their jobs, bike on the weekends, take advantage of all of the cultural things, whether it was restaurants or theater or live music that the city had to offer. And what they're seeing with COVID is that in a pandemic situation, the last thing you want is to be living in some sort of congregate uh, lifestyle where you're living right on top of people, you have little or no outside space, nowhere to call your own, and you've got streets that are clogged with people as you're trying to walk around and get some air. And so this is really, in a very short period of time, helped millennials in particular, but people of all ages just do a 180. This is only going to go and increase the uh, inventory issue that we're already having, where people aren't going to even downsize. They're not going to sell so they can trade down and move back to the city and enjoy all these things in their retirement. They're going to stay put. And that means fewer homes are available for anybody to buy, no matter where they want to live. One of the great misses by a lot of people who are predicting real estate, not you, but a lot of people I talked to is they were absolutely sure. They said the baby boomers, they are going to downsize. They were absolutely 100% going to downsize. And that's going to open up all of these homes to millennials. And that's how the market fixes itself. But as you pointed out, the baby boomers, say, in especially in major cities, Los Angeles, um, San Francisco, New York, Boston, where living is expensive, they're going, do you know what a hotel costs around here? My kids are never going to visit me if they have to stay at a hotel. That's not happening. I have to stay in a house that's big enough for them to stay at. Even if I'm in 4,000 square feet and there's just two of us, we're staying put. And I don't think most people saw that coming. Well, multi-generational housing is one of the hot, buzzy things that's going on right here right now, where not only are these homes expensive, but when you have four and five bedrooms, four and five bathrooms, you could easily move grandma into a granny flat. You've got kids that can have their own kind of space with their own bathroom and maybe even a shared bedroom and bath for the grandkids. And you've got everybody kind of living together in a way that in other countries is very common, but was not common here in the United States. Well, due to expenses and COVID and the fact that people are bundling together and, and living together in these sort of multifamily households, they've become very, very interesting properties both to build and to buy, and they're in high demand right now. And I think we're going to see that continue over the next at least couple of years. 
Okay, so with these low, lower mortgage rates, people are looking to buy, and now they are buying, and they're thinking, well, this is this is my big chance. Again, looking at a monthly payment, total cost doesn't mean as much to them, kind of the way a lot of people buy cars these days. On the other hand, apartment renters are in dire straits. While all of this is going on with housing, which is especially good for people who already own a house and have equity to invest in the next house, there are parts of the country right now where there are so many evictions taking place that homelessness may well, in fact, is surging. And you wonder what we can do about that because in terms of lower-income housing, nothing's getting built. Yeah, um, HUD has really cut back on the amount that they're spending to support low-income housing, uh, homelessness, even homelessness for vets is up. Uh, There's just a tremendous shift going on right now in terms of what people can afford. And when you look at just the fact that people are having so much trouble putting together even a rent payment uh, we have 32 million people unemployed in this country thanks to COVID right now. There are 5 million jobs available. That math doesn't work any way you think about it. And so people have become very dependent on the unemployment assistance that they're getting from their states. The extra $600 that they were getting went a long way towards making rent payments. Well, now that's gone, and we don't know what's going to take place. And so um, you've got now 25 and 30% of Americans who are worried about whether they're going to be able to make that next mortgage payment or that next rent payment. And with the eviction moratoriums disappearing and no confirmation that that'll be extended, I think they're very worried as well. And from the landlord's point of view, they also depend on getting that income stream in so that they can make their payments to their own investors. We've become a very interconnected society from a real estate perspective. And when you take a deeper dive into the data, you know, you really begin to understand why consumers feel so nervous about their future economic prospects, you know, due to the pandemic. It's so uncertain. Real estate expert Elise Glink. But why don't we just build more housing? Wouldn't that make things better? That comes up when we continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking about what's happening with housing for Americans with Elise Glink, the CEO of Best Money Moves, an award-winning financial wellness platform. And one of the things that keeps coming up in this conversation is why we just can't get more homes and apartments built. You would hope that there would be just more housing built to take the pressure off. When I talk to home builders, they say, look, with the price of lots in major areas, just that. Then you add regulations which, you know, may be excellent for safety and protecting people and all of that, but adds to the cost. And they say, and just the cost of some goods, like talked to a, a builder the other day, said lumber prices are just killing him. And I said, can you build homes for $200,000, $250,000? He said, no, it's just pretty much impossible. Of course, that's not true in every area of the country, but in many areas where the jobs are, it is true. Yeah, there's actually a bunch of things going on structurally in the housing industry that are really problematic. One is that you don't have the number of workers that you need to actually physically build the houses, paint the houses, plaster the houses, install the hardware, all the things that in a lot of cases, we had immigrants who were experts at that from other countries who moved to this country for a better life, and they were uh, among those who would actually go into that world. When uh, things slowed down, those, those workers 10 years ago disappeared, and we have not 
in the last 10 years, build back that uh, store of workers who can actually get that job done. Now layer on top of it, we've had issues with uh, Chinese uh, drywall. That was a huge problem a bunch of years ago. Uh, U.S. manufacturers have not yet caught up, so we're always constantly short of building materials. The lumber issue is a great issue, concrete, um, whatever else uh, you know goes into actually building a house. And so in addition to the problems you're talking about, the impact fees and the uh, regulations that go on top of it, the lack of actual lots available, and the fact that 10 years ago, mom and pop builders were pretty much tossed out because of what happened with the Great Recession. And even the biggest companies had to merge in order to stay together and intact financially. We have literally not been building anywhere near the number of homes that we need. And so part of the shortage of inventory that we're seeing right now is the fact that over the last 10 years, we've only built maybe a third to a half as many homes or houses or condos as we should have to just keep pace with inflation, excuse me, to just keep pace with the number of buyers that were out there and the population in general. And so here we are today where we now have 10 years of not building enough and we have a surge of home buying interest. And so we're way short. We're just coming up way short. It's going to take a while for us to catch up. Final thing. We talk about all the people working from home. This was supposed to be kind of a slowly rolled out revolution in work that was going to happen over the next couple of decades. COVID has sped this up. And more to the point, you have a lot of employers, not just in tech, who are saying, I don't need all this real estate. I don't need to heat all of this real estate. I'm going to close down my regional centers, a lot of my offices, people working from home has worked great. Now, it, it, this goes to the core of my question when we talk about places people can live and what to do about all of this. There's a TV show on HGTV. It's one of the one or two most popular shows called Hometown. It's in a little town called Laurel, Mississippi, where this uh, lovely and engaging couple fix up these homes. The average home price in Laurel, Mississippi is $60,000. And you wonder whether one of the things we're going to see now that working from home is becoming more and more technologically not just possible, but accepted by companies, whether we're going to see people going, why am I living in or near a big city when I can live in a place where I can have the home of my dreams, buy it for 60, fix it up like, you know, they show $150,000. I've got something great. It's something that could reset the home market in the United States among both older buyers looking ahead to a fixed income, but also younger buyers who don't want to grow up to be house poor. It's entirely possible we'll see that. The problem comes in when you look at the rest of your lifestyle. So you've got a house, but what are the schools like if you decide to have children? How far are you from friends and family in a house of worship? Um, do you want to live in a place that has culture, theater, you know, all of these other things? W what about restaurants? You know, then you get into the rest of your life. How about a yoga studio, for example? So I think that you would see this start to um, happen in some rural areas, but you also need to make sure that you've got the good, dependable Wi-Fi so that you can actually do your high-paying job from wherever you used to live in the country. So I think we'll watch it and see what happens, but I do think that the movement that we've seen over the last couple of decades where people are more flexible about 
how they do their jobs and where they might want to do them from, I think we're going to see that continue. So much about America and housing in particular being changed forever right now. Elise Glink is CEO of Best Money Moves, an award-winning financial wellness platform, which you can take a look at at bestmoneymoves.com. Elise, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending the time. It's nice to be here, Gail. Thank you. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There is a great deal of news about the fight against COVID-19. And to catch up, we check in again with Dr. Mel Herbert, himself an emergency room physician who is CEO of MRAP, checks in with doctors battling the SARS-CoV-2 virus around the world and is professor of emergency medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. Good to have you back, even though since we keep having you back, it means we're still in the midst of this virus. Yeah, it's great to be back. But yep, unfortunately, I think we're going to be doing this for quite a while yet. Right. So let's start with masks, because there's been so much controversy. Some of it has been more political than medical. It's well-proven masks with distancing lessen the chance of spreading the virus. But it turns out not all masks are created equal. And one of the ones that is uh, probably one that we should not be wearing is neck gaiters for people not familiar with the term and i have to admit i was one of them a lot of runners wear them you wear them around your neck and then pull them up i would say like all of this stuff the preponderance of the evidence right now is you probably should have some cotton mask that's got about three layers if you're doing one from home that these neck gaiters they might not be as good and so since the wearing of masks is so simple and easy Go with sort of the three-layered cotton mask for now until we get some more information about whether this is really a problem. Before we get to some of these other issues, let's talk about why we are where we are. We're the United States. Technologically, you know, we're a fantastic country. We're only 4% of the world's population, but we've got about 25% of the infections and about the same amount of deaths. You look at places like South Korea, where they nipped this in the bud fairly early. New Zealand's had a few cases, I think four cases that popped up again. But that's in three months, and we get about 50 cases every minute here in the United States. Where have we gone wrong? We've just failed terribly uh, from a public health point of view. These other countries, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, they saw the pandemic coming. They talked to the scientists. The scientists said the best way to deal with this is to really crush the curve, really shut things down. Let's get the numbers down to a really manageable point, really low, so that you can do contact tracing and then you put people into quarantine. What we did in the United States is that we started the process and then when we reopened, we used it like a switch when we said, okay, you can go out there again, a lot of governors and frankly, the White House basically said, okay, everybody get back to work because the economy is in bad shape. And everybody went back to almost near normal activity. If you look at cell phone data, if you look at um, Facebook tracking, people went back to near normal pre-pandemic uh, movement around the cities uh, within a very short time. And that just caused it to explode again. So other countries crushed the curve 
And then they slowly reopened. And when there were some outbreaks, they did the contact tracing. They did the quarantine. If it was going up too much, then they said, okay, everybody back inside for a while. So we just failed at the basics of public health. They also, in other countries, mandated masks when we realized that, that how important that asymptomatic spread was. And here in the United States, we had this big political thing like, you're a wimp if you wear a mask, so I don't want to wear a mask kind of thing. So we failed sociologically and we failed in a public health realm. We hear a lot about vaccines. You know, we hear, oh, they're, they're coming out any day now. Then we hear nah, probably the end of next year. And of course, there's several different kinds of vaccines out there that work completely different ways. Well, the vaccine is just one part of a group of things that could really help us get to the other side of this closer to normality. And you're right. Right now, there's, you know, there's like three vaccines that are really out front. And they're headed into phase three, and that means they're going to be trialed in tens of thousands of people to see if they're, first of all, efficacious and how efficacious they are, uh, whether they're working. And also the side effect profile, very, very important. So you can have a vaccine that works, but um, might have significant side effects. You can also have this circumstance where you get a vaccine and you get a big antibody response, and that's good. But then when you get the virus, you have such an inflammatory response because you've already had this vaccine, which has primed the immune system. You get even sicker than the person who didn't get a vaccine. So that's why you need to do tens of thousands of patients to make sure the vaccine is safe. We probably will have a vaccine from one of these three sort of main candidates by the end of the year. That means they'll have finished the studies and they'll decide if it's going to work and if it's safe. And then we have to manufacture it. Now, we understand that probably some of these vaccines are already being manufactured right now. So once the FDA decides, okay, it works and it's safe, they'll already have tens of millions of vials of this stuff ready. But it's no guarantee that it's going to work in the way we want. And you're right, Gil, this, it's probably not going to be 100%. There are very few vaccines that are close to 100%. The flu vaccine, it is likely that we will get a vaccine early next year. It'll start to be distributed if everything goes well. And we'll still have to do things like wearing masks. And we'll still have to close uh, things down if it explodes too much. Because it won't be 100% effective. It won't be magic. It'll have to be public health plus vaccine. Russia is making news about its vaccine program. They claim to have developed a COVID-19 vaccine, and they are using it even though it was tested on maybe 38 people or so. I can't even begin to explain to you how huge a risk they're taking. So we've not seen any data about this vaccine. We don't really know anything about it. They've used it in a couple of soldiers, it sounds like. And then they're going to give this to the entire population. They're basically taking the phase three, which is where you're supposed to now give it to sort of tens of thousands of people to see if it works and to see if it's safe. And it sounds like they're just going to do phase three on an entire population. So what if it doesn't work? They've lost a lot of money. What if there's some really serious side effects in every 100 people that get it? They're going to hurt just as many people as they potentially could save. What if it's even worse than that? What if it's a live vaccine and it turns out that it's even more infectious than COVID and uh, has a, uh, a mortality that's worse? I'm not sure why they're doing it, but it is spectacularly dangerous. As a final thing. I was watching on MRAP where, you know, so many emergency room physicians from all around the world get together and exchange information. I was watching, I think it was Dr. Sarah Krager, just talking about 
all of the decisions an ER doctor has to make in the treatment of somebody when they come in. Yeah, there's a level of complexity to looking after these patients, which is hard to get your head around. The number of different possibilities in terms of therapy is changing constantly. And the sheer numbers of patients that are coming in when you're in the middle of one of these giant peaks because you've completely failed at the public health, it can be overwhelming for these docs. And we've seen the sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's one thing to have a very complicated patient in front of you and really be able to think about it and talk with colleagues. It's another thing when you have to do that a hundred times a shift. They're under enormous stress. They're doing a great job. And, and all they do is ask me, please, Mel, if you're on the radio, if you're doing your thing, just plead with people, plead with them, please follow the public health guidelines, wear the mask, do the physical distancing, because we can't do this for too much longer. It's overwhelming in these places where the outbreaks have been, have been so bad. Dr. Mel Herbert is an emergency room physician who is CEO of MRAP and gets to check in with doctors who are battling this virus all around the world, as well as professor of emergency medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. Mel, it, I, I always learn so much. I thank you for giving us some of your valuable time. Oh, thank you for giving me a chance to uh, talk to you about this stuff. And again, please, please, just wear the masks, do the right thing, and um, this this uh, country can't function without a healthcare system. So we can do this. If we do this right, we're going to be okay. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've talked about the future of movies before, and the good news is their future seems fine, but the future of movie theaters is looking dim. Many independent theaters have closed for good since the virus hit, though as with so many department store chains, this just seemed to be hurrying along a fate that was already unavoidable. A lot of those conversations go like this. I'll never be able to go to the Clay Theater again. When's the last time he actually went to the Clay Theater? Um, um, in some parts of the country, some theaters are ready to get you back inside, and they're willing to try anything. When it reopens many theaters August 20th, AMC will sell tickets for 15 cents. Put that in perspective. When Gone with the Wind opened, the average price of a ticket was 23 cents. And that was 81 years ago. Theaters are anxious to reopen by September 3rd, when the new Christopher Nolan film Tenet is released. But even then, most theaters will operate at reduced capacity. You might see a blockbuster like that playing in half or more of the theaters in a multiplex, which will make up some of the lost box office and snack stand money, but it'll keep many lesser ballyhooed films on home screens only. But even as new technology like streaming kills some theater business, really, really old technology is seeing a rebirth. Walmart is opening drive-in movie theaters in more than 160 of its parking lots, and in New Mexico, where just one drive-in was left on the whole state, a brand new one has opened at a racetrack in Santa Fe. The drive-in comeback is happening in Texas as well, where CBS News correspondent Mireille Verriel went to see a theater that had a full house and no ceiling. At the Coyote Drive-In, the Fort Worth city skyline serves as a backdrop for some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters. Once a relic of the past, the nation's nearly 330 drive-in movie theaters 
are making a comeback with pandemic precautions pushing their popularity. We've been sold out every night since we opened. Glenn Solomon owns a Coyote drive-in. People are excited to take their children, get in the car, come out and have a night out together in a safe place. In the small bed of this truck, the Medellin Moreno family is anxious to watch their first drive-in movie. We're feeling really, really good. We're eating snacks, we're feeling the wind and the weather, and it's awesome. There you guys go. General Manager Chris Fortune says even as business booms, customer and employee safety is their priority. We are doing social distancing everywhere at the drive-in we can possibly. We have a reduced capacity in our lots, so we're only selling 25% capacity. It's always been my dream to like go to a drive-in and like or a diner, and now my dream has been to come And it's that sense of nostalgia that drives Solomon, whose father owned movie theaters as well. He grew up during the Depression, and that was a great escape for people, was to go see films. That's a little bit of what it's going to be for people now, is to come out and escape. A silver lining found on the silver screen. Mireya Villarreal, CBS News, Fort Worth, Texas. By the way, since many of these pop-up drive-ins have no clout with the studios, they are mainly showing old films. But at the Fort Union drive-in this weekend in Las Vegas, New Mexico, if you're up for Grease and Footloose, and you can stop yourself from dancing into the back of someone else's pickup, you got a movie to go to. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.